Welcome to Pick Me Up Pod. This is the podcast where we are destigmatizing everything and anything menstrual health, from your period to birth control to pregnancy and abortions. I'm your host, Sophie, and I have a period, and I want to talk about it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pick Me Up Pod. My name is Sophie. I am your host. I am coming at you just by myself. And you know what? That is absolutely okay because I have some very, very interesting as well as exciting new information coming out of MIT that I want to share with you guys. Uh, I'm not going to lie, doing these episodes is a little bit difficult by myself. I definitely love the volley between myself and my guests. But, you know, as life happens, sometimes things happen and guests cancel. And one of the things that I'm bringing into this new year is the fact that consistency is king. And this is an issue and topic that I really care about. And to be honest, I don't really care if one person listens to this and finds it interesting or if 10 people do or who knows, maybe if 100 people do. But yeah, thank you guys so much for tuning in. This is going to be a little bit of a shorter episode, but I want to talk about a issue um, that affects millions and millions and millions and millions of women every day and is something that uh, honestly still to this day is not taken seriously at all by doctors. It's not something that afflicts me personally, but I have many, many friends who struggle with it. And that is the big E word. Yes, you guessed it. Endometriosis. Um, Some people refer to it as endo and it affects about one in 10 women. And essentially what it is, is it's a disease where tissue that's similar to the lining of the uterus grows outside the uterus and causes pain and or infertility and takes on average a woman or someone who has a period nine years to get diagnosed by doctors. Um, The root cause of this illness is still unknown. The treatments that are on the pharmaceutical market are really just covering up the symptoms. Um, You can get hormone therapy by taking birth control. Um, You can get um, surgeries done, which essentially takes some of that tissue off. Um, Those surgeries only have a 50% success rate, and a lot of women who have endometriosis end up having to go back in for several surgeries at a time. My friends that have this are incredibly affected by it and have been since they were very, very young. I'm sure you guys that are listening have someone like this in your life, or perhaps you have this. Um, You know, these are the people that when they got their periods when they were younger, they ended up in the ER, or they ended up curled on the floor, you know, buckled over in pain. And oftentimes when they went to go see their nurses or doctors or perhaps even teachers or their parents told them that they were just weak, that they just had a very low tolerance for pain, um, when in actuality they had something that many doctors are unable to diagnose them with. For hundreds, if not thousands of years, uh, women who came in with um, this affliction were actually diagnosed with hysteria, um, which was probably done for a lot of diseases that women were diagnosed with back in the day. And the reason I bring up this topic is um, because there are actually some new studies coming out of MIT um, that have uncovered some things about it. 
And I think these advancements and these studies that are being made into endometriosis are long overdue. And it brings a little bit of hope to the horizon for people that struggle with this. And anyone that's listening to this that has um, endometriosis um, or has a loved one that has it or just cares about people in general, um, I think will um, be really excited to hear some of this stuff. Um, I actually won't be giving you all the medical details. I'm actually going to be pulling some clips um, from a talk that I listened to. Um, but just to give you a bit of an overview, endometriosis was long thought to be genetic. Um, but some of these new studies that are coming out are actually showing that it has more to do with changes at the protein communication network state. What that means, guys, I have no idea. But rest assured, I will not be taking you through it. I'm going to play some clips um, from a talk that I listened to uh, from Dr. Linda Griffith. She's a professor of biological engineering and mechanical engineering at MIT, and she also directs the Center for Gynepathology Research. This came out in August of last year, so it's relatively new, and I haven't read anything about it, um, so hopefully um, this comes as something new to you guys as well. Everything was great, except that year, I also had IVF, and I failed, and I failed miserably so bad, Brigham and Women's threw me out of their program and told me not to come back. You never get over infertility. The maternal instinct is a force of nature, and it's, it's very, very hard to even think about it, even standing here and, and talking about it. But when you're at MIT, you can do something about it. And uh, the backstory um, on my infertility was that Ever since I started having my menstrual periods, they were terrible. Pain, bleeding, fainting, vomiting, horrible GI symptoms. Started in high school. I was an athlete, karate, track team, everything. Things got worse in college. I had to get Demerol shots every month at the infirmary. Worse in graduate school still. Rescheduled my qualifying exam. Finally, when I moved to MIT for a postdoc, I went to the doctor every month for six months. They finally scheduled me for an outpatient procedure, said I'd need a couple of days off from work. They weren't sure what was wrong with me. No one ever said that anything that happened to me was abnormal. They all said that I was within the range of normal symptoms. I didn't even wake up from surgery until the next day. It wasn't outpatient. I was in the hospital a week. And they told me I had stage four of a disease I had never heard of, endometriosis. This is a disease characterized by ectopic growth or growth outside of the uterus, of the lining of the uterus. So these little lesions form, they become filled with blood vessels all over the place. They can go in the diaphragm and tunnel through to the lungs, invade into the bowel, into the kidney. You can lose your kidney from this. I almost did. And so all of these things happen and they cause terrible pain, anemia, and it's the leading cause of infertility in women. We really don't yet completely understand what causes it. There's a lot of theories. It could be a developmental problem. It could be that in some women, when they have their period, the menses goes out the fallopian tubes and implants in the abdominal cavity. And, and we also know that some women do respond to hormone therapies, but I wouldn't be here talking to you today if there weren't an enormous number of hundreds of million, uh, uh, about 100 million women around the world who are suffering so much that they have repeated surgeries over and over again, 10 or 12 surgeries sometimes. Okay, so I 
you know, didn't want it, didn't think I would ever do research in this. Um, but some things happened in around 2006, 2007, 2008 that changed my mind. One of them was these endless calls from my sister, who lives in Atlanta, um, about her daughter, who exactly had the same high school experience with me with respect to her periods. She also loved math. And, you know, the doctor would tell my sister, you know, she's uh, kind of exaggerating. She got sent for tests. She had a lot of GI symptoms. Colonoscopy came back negative. And the doctor told my sister, your daughter is making everything up to get out of going to school. Okay, this wasn't that long ago. Lava shot out of my head. My doctor, Keith Isaacson, got her referred to a great surgeon in Atlanta, and she had stage 3 endometriosis when she was 16. This is the only time I'm going to interject Dr. Griffith, but at this point of listening to her talk, I honestly started crying. I think this happens to so many of us when we go to the doctor and our needs aren't taken seriously and we're coming with genuine pain and concerns. And the fact that this very young girl, very young and ambitious girl, went to her doctor with these complaints and was basically told that she was making it up to not go to school, it just makes me think about how many people this has happened to throughout the course of history and how many women were never vindicated. Okay, so uh, Dr. Isaacs has said, are you ready to do research on endometriosis now? Because around that time, I also had my eighth surgery for endometriosis, which was after I'd had a hysterectomy. And so, you know, it's like, not for MIT. I don't want to talk about this at MIT. I don't want to think about it. Not for MIT. But then also around that time, um, another thing happened at MIT. Susan Whitehead, who's on the MIT Corporation and a very wonderful person, devotes enormous time to MIT, invited me to do a women's event at the Museum of Science, a lunch. And in preparation for it, she, she wanted the speakers um, to think about how their research influenced women. You know, what, what, what does it really have to do with women? And I'm like, I work on liver and bone, nothing particularly with women. I was actually kind of a little bit irritated by that. But then I started thinking, MIT is a place that everybody looks at, and they watch how you spend your time. A lot of people can work on bone, uh, but not that many people can actually work on real things, tangible things that will help these 10% of women who have this disease. One in 10 women has it. So a student asked me a question at the end of this uh, session, and I blurted out. The student said, where do you see your lab in three to five years? I said, I'm going to have a lab that focuses on endometriosis research. What the heck? Where did that come from? And moreover, what am I going to do? Because there was no money. People thought I was crazy to think about this. To go from well-funded research areas into something where there's no funding. So Dr. Isaacs and I looked around. We got a foundation to give us a quite big grant. We recruited postdocs, and we started the Center for Gynepathology Research together between Newton Wellesley and MIT with Doug Laufenberger, my collaborator at Systems Biology, also um, my husband. And the question, though, was, what are we going to do? I didn't know anything about this field. Doug didn't know. Keith is a clinician. He's a sur great surgeon. But the biology, we didn't know so much. But then a miracle happened. I got breast cancer. And it was amazing. I found a lump in my breast in Singapore on a Friday. By the next Friday, I knew that I was something called triple negative breast cancer. 
Now, that's not a particularly good kind. You have supersized chemo, but what it means is that I was negative for three canonical markers, molecular markers related to the mechanism, the prognosis, and the therapy. Okay, so there's targeted therapies for many kinds of cancer. There weren't any for mine, but I did fine with regular chemo, and here I am. But it really got us thinking. Um, it got us thinking about, in endometriosis, there's nothing like this. You have endometriosis or you don't. And I can tell you, my oncologist didn't come up to me and say, Linda, your tumor is three centimeters. Here's what we're going to do. But that's what they were doing with endometriosis. It was classified according to lesion burden. You get points for every lesion you have, and your stage four, if you've got a whole bunch. And it didn't really mean anything. It didn't correlate with symptoms or anything. Um, so what we came in and said is there's got to be molecular subtypes of this disease. There's got to be. Okay, how do we find them? There's so much heterogeneity, the age of onset, the clinical presentations, everything. And in fact, um, you know, what we've ultimately done from work I'll show you in a moment is we have changed the field to appreciate this. I went to a conference uh, about five years ago and there was a banner saying exactly this, endometriosis is not one disease. So I felt, yay, I'm not alone anymore. People finally, finally got the message. So what did we do? Um, well, Again, we were very fortunate that back in 97, 98, we had started a new department at MIT. It was actually an experiment at first, became a department later, now course 20, called biological engineering. Now, what does that mean? Well, at the time, we had biomedical engineering. You probably heard of that, engineering applied to medicine. So that green thing there is a laser. That's Megan Loring, who was a, actually a fellow who helped operate on me once. And she's using a laser to excise some of the lesions, okay? And so medical engineering, where you bring all this kind of cool stuff to do surgery and tools and widgets, is very, very well established. But wasn't, what wasn't so much established, and what we really needed was to be thinking about molecular biology from molecular up to systems level. How is information being processed in cells? How do things change in space and time? I'm showing a cell here getting cues from the environment. They could be um, protein signaling molecules, nutrients, etc. They process through signal transduction and then they make decisions about what to do to grow, to divide, to secrete something. Cell decision processes was popularized by Doug Laufenberger. Okay, and so engineers see not just a molecule and get fascinated with it. They Think about categories and functions of molecules and how do they work together to affect the whole system behavior. And we build mathematical models of how these things work so that we can try to predict and understand biology and harness biology, not just understand it, but actually harness it to do things we want, and even not just in medicine, but in agriculture and other things. Okay, and so we claim we started a new discipline. This has actually been um, accepted in the community. Um, MIT won a big award from the National Academy of Engineering last year for creating a new discipline of biological engineering. So it's like chemical engineering, biological engineering, electrical engineering, et cetera, for really a biology-based um, discipline. So now why was this important? It's important because when we go in and think about how we're going to understand endometriosis, it's not genetic. So in cancer, you have mutations of genes and you can do sequencing and understand things at the level of, ah, there's a mutation, there must be something related to that. But in diseases like endometriosis and some other chronic inflammatory diseases, it's probably changes at the protein communication network state. So we can look at how cells are talking to each other and infer what the whole network is doing. How is the network messed up? 
Okay, so what did we do in a first study that got a lot of attention eventually in, in order to do this? So we had about 100 patients and controls together. Now, if you had cancer, you'd have 1,000, but we didn't have that kind of money. And they had all stages of disease, and we took the peritoneal fluid, the fluid that exists in your abdominal cavity that has proteins and cells in it, very easy to collect, and people had published that there was inflammation, but they focused on a single molecule, or maybe two or three. What we decided to do was actually measure 50 different signaling molecules. It was actually very hard to do at the time. This was about 10 years ago. Do it quantitatively. And then we did a kind of analysis that, um, you know, so we take the fluid out, we measure all this stuff, and we did a kind of math that Netflix uses to tell you what movies to watch as long as Netflix is still in business. Um, and uh, so, so what it means, so it's unsupervised, meaning we didn't tell it who was a patient and who was a control. We still had a hypothesis, a hypothesis about immune communication, but it was unsupervised. And we asked, are there groups of patients in whom these cytokines are changing together, up and down together? in correlated ways, because if they're correlated, that's part of a network. So in fact, we found a signature uh, set of cytokines, and we reproduced this study with a collaborator in Brazil that was there in about a third of the patients with all stages of disease. Using some bioinformatics tools and published databases, we could reverse engineer this, okay? It was pretty tricky, but we then pointed to a particular kind of cell called a macrophage in the patient's abdominal cavities, making all these inflammatory molecules. And it turns out there was an enzyme inside the cell, something called June kinase, regulating all of that. And we predicted that again from some bioinformatics. And, and so when we inhibited that, we could stop the production of this. Oh my God, a non-hormone target for endometriosis. This is huge. Okay, so this is huge. Moreover, at the same time, we did a study on the invasion processes. So I'm, we first told you about inflammation, taking the fluid out, something you can teach surgeons all over the world to do, and we have. But we also did a very complex study to look at the process of how these cells invade into muscle. And so I'm showing you here a patient of our collaborator in Brazil. She had these two huge lesions invade her bowel wall, and she couldn't poop. So they took out 10 centimeters of her bowel. Okay, so this is a very serious disease. Now, June kinase also was implicated there. So we got really excited. After we published our papers, we found out that June kinase had actually cured multiple patient populations of endometriosis. Okay, unfortunately, none were human. Um, Moreover, Steve Palmer, the Palmer of uh, the author here, was working at Merck, and he uh, had been pushing this to go into the clinic, and in fact, there was a clinical trial, it wasn't successful, but there was issues with the patient trial design, there were issues with the molecule they used, et cetera, and then drug companies said, you know what we need? We really need models of the patients. We need avatars of actual patients to test these drugs, or we're not gonna take a non-hormone hormonal therapy. So I got a big, huge DARPA grant, about $35 million over five years, and our program manager let us use part of it to build some models. And this is where we are now. This is now supported by NIH. But what you see here is a collaboration with Roger Cam, a colleague, where he has been able to grow 
little blood vessels in a microfluidic device, and you can see the green cells there are immune cells moving through them. And what we're doing now, as shown on the right, is putting little lesions, cells that come from patients into these, and watching the blood vessels grow in, and then we will be doing um, drug treatments of these and looking at immune cell trafficking and so on. So this is really building a very complex model of the patient in the lab, and this is where we are right now. Of course, the clinical scene continues to evolve. Um, what is now becoming a lot more recognized, not as much as it should, is that there's a companion form of endometriosis when it's actually in the wall of the uterus called adenomyosis. Um, it's very understudied. Probably 10% of women have this. You can see here using PubMed citations as a proxy for research intensity. Um, a whole lot, uh, not a whole lot there compared to Crohn's, which has similar incidents. So we have a long way to go, but MIT is very committed to being a leader in bringing together engineering and biology and clinicians to solve this. So I want to end by saying um, I never regretted for a minute going in this field, even though it's a struggle for money, because the clinical universe is amazing all over the world. Clinicians are so dedicated to helping women. It is a joy to work with them, and we work with clinicians all over the world. And of course, MIT is a village that jumps up to help when they see an intractable problem. Everybody on the top are people who are funded to work with us, but the rest of the folks here are donating their time. When they find out that this is a problem, everybody knows somebody with endometriosis, and so they chip in to help. Wow, that is a lot to digest for the non-scientific mind. Dr. Lena Griffith is obviously super, super badass, and I have nothing but the deepest respect and admiration for her tackling this issue. And as you noticed from her talk, this came from a very personal place, um, both to her, her struggling through her infertility, as well as watching her niece go through the exact same thing and the exact same thing from doctors that was denied her years and years ago. And... What I found interesting about this talk was the fact that for a while, she really didn't want to touch this topic. She was like, no, this isn't what I want to do at MIT. Basically, her saying this is not what I want my legacy to be. And it wasn't until she saw her niece going through it that she was really impassioned to use her skill set, her platform, her opportunity at MIT um, to make a move in the direction of bringing forward some kind of solution, a medical solution for people that are suffering from this. And I think that just goes to show that it's hard when a lot of the people that are enfranchised in this world don't have to suffer through this. You see that those solutions aren't found for people that do. For me, that says a couple of things, but what really stands out is the fact that we need to be really loud about the pain that we're suffering because it's real. I think she leaves off the talk on a really positive note, but at the same time, we still don't have all the solutions and nowhere endometrius endometrius is sorry oh my god that word i'm not gonna record this again and i'm gonna post it as is because perfectionism is dead it's clear from the talk that we don't have the solution or the cure for endometriosis yet but it's great to see that one of the top universities in the world is making a move towards finding that cure. And yeah, that's a very positive note to end the podcast on. I will be back next week with a guest. Uh, but thank you guys so much for listening and I will see you next week. Bye.